If you have your Bibles, uh, we are going to be in Luke chapter 1. Uh, we will be in Luke chapter 1, looking at verses 46 uh, to 56. Luke chapter 1, uh, verses 46 uh, to 56. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estates. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned home. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's ask the Lord for his help. Father, the, uh, the grass withers, the flowers fade, uh, the kingdoms and Rulers of this earth will fade. All of the things that we have to do will fade, and we ourselves will fade, but your word stands forever. And we come to your word today, uh, trusting that these are, are not dead words that are just sitting on a page, but these are the very words of God, the words that have been breathed out by God. And we ask that you would, through these words and by the power of your spirit, show us the glorious and beauty and majesty of Jesus Christ. I ask that we would see him in his glory and in seeing him, in, seeing him in his glory, we would be conformed into that same image. I pray for all of us. We have heard uh, bad news at various points throughout the week, uh, but in this moment, we ask to hear good news. It's through Christ we pray. And all God's people said, uh, if you were to ask me uh, to sum up the season of Advent in one word, I would use the word longing. I would use the word longing. Uh, Advent is a season where God's people, we are invited to look back and reflect on the fact that God has taken on flesh to save us. But Advent is also a season where we look forward to the day where God comes back and makes all things new. And I think this season of Advent resonates with so many of us because we each understand what it feels like to long for something. Have you ever longed for something so intensely that it would haunt you? You find that it, the longing is always on your mind, always in your heart, and perhaps even in your prayers. You may find yourself this morning longing for children, and you've pleaded with the Lord You've done everything that you know how to do, but it seems like the Lord has not given you your heart's desire. You, you scroll through your Facebook feed and you see that so many other people are having children and, you're, and it, it allows the excitement that you have be tethered with the pain because it feels like the Lord has ignored you. 
Perhaps you find yourself uh, this day yearning to enter into the the covenant of of marriage, but it seems like you're constantly surrounded by everyone else who is partaking in this gift, and it feels like God has abandoned you. Or maybe it is health, or the health of a loved one. You you feel the the devastating effects of an aching body, and and you hear testimony after testimony of God healing others, but it feels like he has passed you by. Maybe it's a career or a dream or whatever it is, you know, like I know this morning, that we are a people who have felt the bitter sting of longing. If we're honest this morning, each of us is longing or yearning for something. We are, are, are in a sense, desperate for God to make a way out of no way. We are, are desperate for God to enter into our situations and circumstances and answer the deepest cries of our hearts. What are you longing for this morning? What has been gripping your prayers and your desires and your thought life? But here's a question that I want you to wrestle with and sit with. How would you respond if God answered that very prayer? What would would it do for your soul if God answered your deepest request? How would it affect how you would view God and who would you tell? The entirety of the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, can be summed up in this same word, longing. After our first parents uh, rebelled in the garden and, and walked their own path, God laid upon them the curse that has affected not only them and not only us, but all of creation, the curse of death. But in this, in this cursing, in this, this rebuke from their sin, God gives a word of hope. He tells them, Adam and Eve, you, there will be a child. You, you will have one who will be of your offspring, who will come from your line, who will crush the head of the serpent who has caused all of this. Adam, there will be one who will be like you, who will succeed where you fail. There will be a redeemer and king that we so desperately need. And the rest of the Old Testament is an unfolding of this longing for this child to come into the world. A song that I... I would imagine that the Old Testament saints would have read or sung if the words were written were the songs that we, the words that we just sung, come thou long expected Jesus. I can hear them sing the words, come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our sins, fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child, yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. In these opening chapters in Luke's gospel, we begin to see God showing up and showing his faithfulness of the promise that he has promised long ago. In, in, the, in the darkness of this waiting, the light of God's faithful promises are being born and coming into fruition. In the previous passage of scripture, an angel approaches Mary and tells her that she will have a child. And this child will not be like just any other child. He will be the very redeemer that God's people and that Adam and Eve long to see. 
He will be born supernaturally. The Holy Spirit will overshadow Mary and she will give birth to a child. She will give birth to Jesus, our Savior, Redeemer, King, and Friend. And our text today in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 56, is Mary's response to the faithfulness of God. Mary responds with with adoration based on the fact that God has met the promises that he has promised long ago. Mary, in these 10 short verses, breaks out in praise. Mary takes time to have a praise break. Uh, We probably uh, would struggle with Mary worshiping with us in the Presbyterian Church because she will not be worshiping decently and in order. You feel the text that she is is clapping her hands and stomping her feet and giving praise to God. Brothers and sisters, good news cannot be held to ourselves. Good news must be spilled out and proclaimed. These verses are Mary's hymn to God. But the beautiful and good news today that these are not just Mary's words, they are also our words. This morning, you and I have been invited into the reality to sing this song that is sung to a God who is faithful to his promises. In verses 46 to 47, it says this, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The words soul and spirit are meant to communicate that Mary is worshiping with the entirety of her being. It's as if she is saying that every ounce of me, every piece of me is worshiping God. She is worshiping God with both body and soul. Her body is expressing the deepest parts of her soul. She uses this phrase, magnify. What does it mean to magnify God? Magnify the Lord. One pastor and theologian has some helpful words here. He says this. There are two kinds of magnifying, microscope magnifying and telescope magnifying. One makes a small thing look bigger than it is. The other makes a big thing begin to look as big as it really is. We are not called to be microscopes. We are called to be telescopes. Christians are not called to be con men who magnify their product out of all proportion to reality when they know the competitor's product is far superior. There is nothing and nobody superior to God. And so the calling of those who love God is to make his greatness begin to look as great as he really is. Beloved, Mary is showcasing the weightiness of our God. She is caught up in the wonder and magnitude of who God is. What Mary knows about God is affecting her affections. She is glorifying God by enjoying him. When is the last time you found yourself worshiping in this way? Where the truth about God pops into your head and you break out in spontaneous praise. There's been times where many of us, if we had the opportunity to testify, that you have been cleaning your house to worship music and your heart has just soared. Or you have been driving on the highway and your your heart is just bursting with praise and you're about to kill the person who's next to you, but you don't care because the truth about God has gripped your heart in such a way that it must spill out into praise. Psalm 34, verses 2 and 3 says this, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble be here and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. 
And the question that is worth asking and that this text forces us to wrestle with in this hymn, what is Mary teaching us about God? Why is Mary worshiping? And Mary gives us three reasons for why she is worshiping. First, she worshiped because God sees. Second, she worships because God has acted. And third, she worships because God has spoken. First, God sees. Verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Mary states that God sees her. God sees Mary. And this is rather shocking and rather scandalous because of who Mary is and her place in society. Mary, according to what we know about tradition and and what many scholars are saying, is Mary is most likely not older than 17 years old. Uh, She is planning to marry a poor carpenter. She is a, a woman. She is from a little podunk town of Nazareth. And Nazareth is this place where you would not send your children to. It's one of those places where you look on the news and you hear something devastating happening and you're saying, my children will never be in this place. This is Mary. Remember the question that Nathaniel asked? What good can come out of Nazareth? She's a person who would be considered low on this socioeconomic status scale. In the eyes of society, Mary would be ignored. She'd be treated as if she is nothing. She would be not seen by anybody, and this is why she says, the humble estate of of his servant. And Mary rejoices in the simple fact that despite, despite being ignored everywhere else, God sees her. Ezra, uh, my 19-month-old son, can get frustrated pretty quickly. Uh, One of his biggest frustrations is where either his mom or myself is not paying attention to him. Uh, We could be cleaning our house, we could be scrolling on Facebook, we could be uh, prepping dinner, but, but in that moment, he begins to fuss, climb into our laps, make goofy faces, but what my son wants more than anything else, what he, what he desires in that moment is to be seen. There is an unspeakable joy when he realizes that his mom and dad sees him. Brothers and sisters, you and I have this same desire, even if we're not 19 months old, we have this same desire to be seen. If you are honest, you have asked yourself or even said out loud, does God see me? You may find yourself in this room this morning struggling with sexual sin. It seems like lust is grabbing a hold of your heart and winning, and all you want to know, is God seeing me fight this sin? Does he see me struggling? Uh, Your marriage may feel like a crushing weight, and something that was meant to be life-giving now seems riddled with pain, conflict, misunderstanding, and you are not sure if you can hang on. You ask yourself at night, does God see me? You feel your heart broken by the betrayal of a friendship or a loved one. It has ended in gossip and backbiting and slander, and you feel utterly alone. You ask yourself, has God forgotten about me? God, do you truly see me? And brothers and sisters, we can take heart in the fact that God sees Mary, but he also sees us. 
And the good news of the gospel is that God does not look at you with anger, but he looks at you with the gaze of love because you are united to his son by faith. The same way that God looks at Jesus, he looks at you. In Genesis chapter 16, uh, when Hagar, who is the the mistress of Sarah, uh, she ends up in the wilderness. God in that moment comes to her in her lowest moment and says to her, you are a God of seeing. For I have truly seen him who looks after me. Notice what Mary says in the second half of verse 48 and 49. For behold, now on, now, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. It's worth being reminded that Mary is a recipient of divine grace. There is much to commend Mary for. She is humble. She is obedient. She fears the Lord. She knows her word. She has faith. She breaks out in in worship. But all of these things did not merit God looking at her. God did not choose Mary because of her qualifications. God chooses Mary because he has graciously acted on her behalf. Mary is a sinner who is in need of mercy. And Mary is rejoicing and celebrating and filled with angst because God has seen her and poured out his unmerited favor upon her. And this is the story of every single believer. God has poured out abundant grace and mercy because of Jesus Christ. The story of Advent is the the story of God who has seen the the desperate condition of his people and has gone to great lengths to show us grace. Our gracious God sees us. And the second thing is that God has acted. Uh, Mary changes the, the, the posture of her praise beginning in verse 50. In verses 49, 46 to 49, she speaks of what God has done for her personally. And then down in verse 50, she flips it and, and begins to worship God, what he has done collectively for his people. God has acted on behalf of Mary, but he has also acted on behalf of his people as a collective group. And according to Mary, because of the baby who is in her womb, because of Jesus Christ, God has granted his people mercy. Verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. We see that God's people throughout all generations, those who fear him, those who, who worship him, it is those who receive mercy. To them belongs mercy. In the coming of Christ, God has acted in mercy. In the coming of Christ, God has provided a substitute for sin. He has provided a redeemer. Mary can rejoice in this truth because God has no obligation to show mercy. Do you remember the words from Exodus? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. God would have been just and right and still good if he left us to be dead in our sins and to suffer the requirement of his wrath. But instead of crushing us, instead of of giving us over to simply divine justice, he has acted in mercy. And not only has God has acted in mercy, he has also acted in power. Second half of, in verse 51, the first half of verse 51, it says he has shown strength 
With his arm, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Uh, This may be a confusing uh, phrase to you, uh, but Mary is teaching us and telling us is that God's power is on full display in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we look at this this baby, this child, we are naturally... uh, bent on looking at this child with weakness and fragility, but Mary knows that this is the very way that God has decided to show how powerful he is. Through the coming of Christ, God has shown strength with his arm. Throughout the, the scriptures, the mentioning of God's arm and the mentioning of his hand speaks of God saving his people from their enemies. Exodus 6, 1, you guys have been studying Exodus. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of the land. In Isaiah 59, 1, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. In my favorite, Psalm 89, verses 8 to 10, 8 to 10, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea when in its waves rise, you steal them, you crush Rabah like a carcass and scattered your enemies with a mighty arm. It's worth being reminded that in this context, God's people are suffering under the oppressive rule and reign of the Roman Empire. God's people were mocked, they were overly taxed, they were abused, they were neglected, and ultimately they were being ruled by someone who was not their king. Every time they looked upon the throne, they would be reminded that things were not as they should have been. But the glorious news is that in the coming of Christ, God's people are given a king that was always meant to rule over them. God's strength is shown in the soul-shaking reality that Jesus Christ is king. Do you remember in the previous chapter, remember what the angel said, the angel Gabriel said to Mary about Jesus? This Jesus will be given the throne of his father David. He will reign over God's people forever and his kingdom will have no end. This is why Mary says in the second half of 51 all the way down to 53, she says this, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. God, the truth is, is that God is bringing down and has brought down all kingdoms that oppress his people. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent away the rich kingdoms that simply oppress others will ultimately be crushed by Jesus. The Westminster Shorter Catechism Um, asked the question of how does Christ execute the office of a king? And it says, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, in restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. Have you thought about the fact that you and I can fly over to Rome and walk down and pay about $7 to see the ruins of what used to be the biggest threat to the Christian faith. 
Have you thought about the reality that many of the mighty kingdoms throughout history, throughout human history, are but footnotes in the pages of research? But the question is, why is the church still flourishing? And the church is still flourishing because we have a king whose kingdom will never end. In the coming of Jesus Christ, God has acted on behalf of his people. He has saved us from our enemies, those who afflict and oppress us, but he has also destroyed the greatest enemy of them all, sin, death, and the devil. I love the way the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, puts it. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free, free thine own from Satan tyr- Satan's tyranny, from the depths of hell thy people to save, and give them victory over the grave. Christmas is a divine rescue mission where God makes good on his promises of crushing the head of the serpent. We can rejoice at at Christmas and during the Advent season that God has sent his son to destroy the works of the devil. Through the, the sacrificial death of our, on our behalf and his subsequent resurrection from the dead, God has destroyed and ended the rule and reign of our greatest enemy. Beloved, God has acted on behalf of his people. And lastly, God has spoken. God has spoken. Verses 54 and 55 says this. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary finishes her hymn to God, her her spontaneous praise by reflecting on the fact that God has been faithful to keep his promises. He has helped Israel, his chosen nation, in remembrance of of his mercy as he spoke to Abraham and to his offspring forever. In Genesis, God comes to Abraham and his wife Sarah and he tells them that they will have offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky. He tells them that through, the, through their offspring, all of the nations shall be blessed. God tells them that it would be through one of your children, Abraham. It will be through a singular seed, a descendant of yours, that all nations, the entirety of people groups, shall be blessed. And this is the same offspring that God promised to Adam and Eve is the same one that God has promised to Abraham and Sarah. And this is the very child that is in Mary's womb. What Mary is saying is that God has fulfilled all of his covenant promises to his people. All of the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. God's faithfulness is clearly seen through the Advent story. Each of us knows someone who overpromises and under-delivers. They give you these grand plans and, and, and big dreams and visions, and you know in the deepest part of your hearts that they simply will not come true. But beloved, the good news is that God is not like that. Every promise that he has spoken has been fulfilled. God has spoken glorious promises and weighty promises, and they have all found their fulfillment. They have all found their climax in Jesus Christ. 
The promise of reconciliation between God and man is fulfilled in Jesus. The promise of the the restoration of all things is fulfilled in Christ. The promise that eternal life and sins can be forgiven is fulfilled in Christ. And even when it feels like God cannot keep his promise, the Christmas story, the Advent story, reminds us that we serve a God who can make a way out of no way. That every promise that God has promised you in your word, even as bleak as it may be seen, God has spoken promises to you. And if you look over his history, he has not lost one yet. God has spoken. And my question to close our time together is, can you make Mary's hymn your own hymn? Can you rejoice in the reality that God sees you and that he has acted on your behalf and has fulfilled all of his promises? Can you see your own story in light of this grand narrative of redemption? Because it's easy for us to find ourselves singing and identifying with so many other songs and we can find ourselves anchoring our narratives of life in the fickle things of this world. And the invitation that is presented to us in this season, in every other season, is to get lost in the beauty and reality that God is making all things new through Christ. My prayer is that we would sing of this redemption and may it flood uh, every single place that we find ourselves in. And may it flood out every background music and the various songs that are being played in our city and in our own lives. Will you pray with me?